everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Caroline Isaacs. She is the executive director of Just Communities Arizona. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, so tell us, what is Just Communities Arizona? Yeah, we're uh, relatively new-ish in our current incarnation. Previously, um, this this group of staff, actually, and myself, had been the Arizona Office of the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker-based organization working on social justice issues for many, many years here in Arizona. And in 22, we um, basically uh, spun off to become an Arizona-based nonprofit organization called Just Communities Arizona. Um, And along with that came a pivot in terms of the work that we're doing as AFSC. We were really focused on sentencing reform. So legislative work to try to reduce the prison population, improve conditions, talk about better approaches to uh, criminal justice. And um, while we made some great strides in that area and sparked some conversations that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise, um, legislative work is tough in a state like Arizona, as you might expect. Um, And the thing that we always came up against was um, when you, you can talk and people are really accepting now, I think, understanding um, the limitations and pitfalls of the current criminal punishment system. It's not effective. It's not reducing crime. It's creating harm in a lot of cases. But what they don't have is a vision of what else we could do. What is the other thing? Because we have just been doing punishment for so long. And that's been, you know, conditioned to think of that as the solution to every problem. So JCA's mission is really to find and uplift the examples of of community-based safety with a capital S that already exist and to build out that structure and show the many ways that communities can and do and are making themselves safer in other ways. So how do we get there? I... I see, you know, one of your missions is we envision a world in which prisons and jails are unnecessary. And I I see that as kind of a realistic approach to abolition because, 
you seem to be acknowledging that at least right now they may be necessary, but you want to reduce them. How do we get to where you want to be? We have to think about what safety is very differently. Um, so there's a huge narrative and conceptual change that needs to come with this um, to break up these silos of safety is safety from trouble, and it's somehow created um, posthumously, right? Like what we're the current criminal justice system waits until something terrible happens and then comes in to decide who's at fault and punish them. That's not that's not creating safety. Um, so we have to really think about what are the things that make us safe? And it is a real wide variety of things. Obviously, if, if you don't, if you're about to be evicted from your home, you're not safe. Um, if your child is in the throes of chaotic drug use or mental health crisis, they're not safe. Um, so we have to think about safety as this ecosystem that has been bled dry. All the resources are in this afterthought approach to punishment. So one of the things that we're really trying to do is to help people understand safety very differently and decouple it from punishment. Punishment does not create safety. Um, and we sort of know that, but we're not used to thinking about safety in this broader sense. So that's part one. And then part two in, is just finding those examples and holding them up for people to say like, look, this is one way to do it. Here's how this particular community has developed an approach that works for them. And the good news is there's an incredible variety of really inspiring and um, innovative approaches to safety, but we don't call them that and we don't think about them that way. And they're not held up to the public to say like, this is a solution. So it's helping bring those examples in front of people to show them what else we could do. So convince me on this point because I can completely buy into the notion that we cannot punish our way into safety. On the other hand, I think there are some people that are dangerous. Um, how, how do we address that? What made those people dangerous? We have failed those people, right? People don't like, I, I think this is another really important um, assumption that we have to unpack is that people who commit crime are inherently bad people that like doing bad things. And so therefore they have to be punished. That is a complete fallacy. Nobody is born wanting to harm other people. It's because they themselves have been harmed in multiple ways. And so we address that harm. We try to create those interventions. And again, that ecosystem that takes care of children in meaningful ways, that gives parents resources that they need to support their families and do the best that they can. Um, and then those services in the community to help out um, when they need that help. We have to really think about this again as a continuum. How how do how do people get harmed so severely that they are able to harm others in this way? Um, we know how to fix that. We know how to fix that. We have for decades, but we don't resource those approaches and we don't think of that as safety. 
and and I want to continue pushing you a little bit um, just because I feel like a lot of people are going to dwell on this point. I can buy into, you know, 99% of the people falling into what you just said. But don't you think there's like 1%, maybe even less than 1%, but but not zero, people that are just bad at the core? No, I don't believe that. I think there are people who have done horrible, horrible things to other people. Um, but I don't believe that anyone is inherently bad. I, I think that's just contrary to everything that we know about human beings. Um, they may be very sick. They may be very ill, in which case they need a treatment and not a punishment. So how do we get there, I guess, is, is, is the critical question. Because, you know, look, you know, and, and just so you understand, like, I hang out with people that, you know, had at one point, you know, committed pretty bad things. Like, I hang out with former convicted murderers um and you know they go through a process and uh you know i'm not a big believer that prison is the answer but you know at the end of the day they're not bad people they made bad decisions <laughs> um but how do we protect society then if we're not going to incarcerate right so again, all of this stuff, this larger definition of safety is about protecting society. But let's think about what is it that we're actually protecting society from? Because if we actually think about the, the types of behaviors that we're concerned about, right? Who's in prison? A huge percent of those people have not physically harmed anyone. They're in there for drugs. They're in there because their behavior was erratic. They're in there because they stole things from people. Um, so the actual number of folks that have committed physical harm to others is actually very small. So we also have to come out of this mindset of being fearful of everyone, of feeling constantly under threat from crime, um, that we're not looking at and unpacking what actually is that. And when we do look at crimes against persons, it's individuals who one another it's often within families or within communities it's retributive right it is not the like bad guy jumping out from behind a bush kind of story we've been sold um so we have to just get like really analytical about what is it that we're afraid of what is it that we actually have to be protected from and where's the actual harm occurring to our communities right if we look at right now the number of people who are unhoused, that is an insane amount of harm that is happening to people that has very little, uh, there's very little energy to address that as harm, as safety, right? But everybody's scared of those people <laughs> because they're out in the street urinating or doing whatever they're doing. And that's scary to us, right? You really have to think about what is it that we need to fear? What is actually a threat to our person and our well-being? And how do we address that? And how do you get there? Is you fund different stuff. The amount of resources that is going into the criminal punishment system 
is the most immense waste of resources that humankind has ever concocted. It only creates further harm. It sucks our state and county and municipal and federal budgets dry. And it does nothing to actually keep us safe. So let's think differently about, and how do we talk to our elected officials? How do we talk to our friends and neighbors about what is it that we want to see to keep ourselves safe? How are we protecting ourselves and our neighbors in a holistic way and not thinking we have to be protected from our neighbors, right? So, I mean, there seems to be multiple layers here. Like, yeah. you know, we have, well, let's take, you know, drugs, right? Um, which should be an easy example, although for some reason in San Francisco, uh, maybe not. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people believe that, you know, we shouldn't be locking people up uh, for, for possessing or using drugs, um, that there are better, safer, and, and more cost-effective ways of dealing with that, treating it as a health issue, uh, dealing with the underlying mental uh, health issues, and, and, and whatnot. Um, but there's also, you know, the the issue, and I think you guys get into this of, you know, poverty issues. Um, that that you have people that, you know, they're homeless, um, so they don't have enough food. That they're they're housing insecure. They're they're food insecure, um, and also, you know, because they're homeless, they're also decompensating mentally. So. So it ties back into the mental health issue. Uh, but that, that seems to be a big piece of the puzzle here that is driving a lot of the um, a lot of the problems of crime, right? Indeed. Yeah, again, it, it is about um, looking at conditions of people's lives and what leads to law-breaking behavior in any, you know, whether, whether that's use of illicit substances, um, you know, breaking into homes, vagrancy, without, you know, we've criminalized practically everything. Um, but, you know, what is driving that behavior? And it, this is not a big mystery, right? We, we know this. There's studies upon studies upon studies that, like, trauma, for example, is at the root of so much of this in terms of substance use, um, homelessness, uh, not being able to hold down a job, not being able to keep, uh, you know, current on your rent payments, right? But what is, how are we not really actually trying to find solutions to that? Um, I think that it's very easy for people to dismiss that as some kind of social welfare state or whatever label people want to put on it. Um, but really what it is, is pragmatic and realistic, right? If we want to solve this problem, if we want better safety, if we want secure communities, that's the way. We know this. What we lack is political will and a different mindset um, culturally and, you know, in terms of our governing bodies about what should be a priority. And you mentioned, you know, social welfare. Um, and it's striking to me that people 
you know, reject the notion of social welfare, but they have absolutely no problem spending fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a year to lock somebody up in a cage. Absolutely, or or prop up a corporation, or bail out a bank, um, or fund a, a, a missile generating plant because it's the lifeblood of your local economic community. Like, yeah, we make these decisions all the time. Um, and, you know, even those fiscal hawks are willing to spend virtually anything on, say, defense or, um, or, or punishment systems. Um, it really is about, like, let's break this down as to what is it that we actually want to create. We want to create safety. There is no question that the system we have does not do that. If it did, we would be the safest country in the world. Um, that argument is over. What is the other thing? How are we not now able to say, okay, that didn't work. And you know, if we look at decades worth of research, we know what does. Um, and it's not social welfare. It is society. It is civilization um, is providing resources to people so that they can live their best lives and be productive. So do you believe we can get down to zero? I do. I do. It is possible. It, this is this is the maddening thing, right? Is that it's all based on decisions made by people who are basing their decisions on things other than what's best for their constituents. Let's be real. Um, so it is about the brokenness of a lot of our government and institutional structures. Um, and that just takes a lot of heavy advocacy. But again, the reason that at JCA we chose to like really go micro and look into communities is that that's a much um, more manageable level to have these conversations and to look at existing examples. Because guess what? There are communities, under-resourced communities of color primarily, that have never been able to rely on the state to keep them safe, right? Those communities have created safety in multiple ways over generations. They're doing it right now. So let's look to that. What's already happening? How are people doing this now? And how can we build on what already works? So what is step one? For us, step one is always research. Um, so we conducted uh, a couple of research projects just here in Tucson in our backyard. Um, we did a survey of over 1,200 Tucson residents by geographic ward um, that is representative of the demographics of this town. And we asked people about the quality of life issues. We asked them about their interactions with the criminal punishment system. We asked them what resources they'd like to see in their communities to make them safer. And it, the results are very encouraging because people by and large get that what we have doesn't work and they know what does. So they're like, we need to address housing across the board. That was like the number one result. 
people get that that is a crisis and it needs a solution. People are concerned about inequality. Um, that was the number two concern that people expressed in this survey. So that points to the fact that people, A, recognize that there is inequality, and B, that they feel that's a problem that needs to be addressed, and they are invested in doing that. And people get what we need. They want to see more mental health treatment, more substance abuse treatment, better resourcing for schools. Um, they see very clearly what, what it is that we need. So taking that research to say to our leaders, your constituents are there with you. Like they're ready for this. 4% of people said we need more police in this survey, 4%, right? They didn't say we don't want any police. They said we don't need more police, right? Like that is not the solution that's gonna get us out of this. They wanna see investments in this ecosystem, right? They get it. So that's step one is just to say like, give some political cover, if you will, to people making decisions that like the people that vote for you want you to do this. Um, they're not out here yelling and screaming about how like I'm concerned about crime in my neighborhood. They're concerned about lack of housing in their neighborhood. Um, so that's good news. Um, and the next step is again to find and resource and build those examples. So we just finished um, a statewide dialogue series where we had panels of folks um, from national models, different organizations in different states doing cool stuff, and organizations here in Arizona talking about their approaches to say, look, you could do this, you could do this, they're doing this, it's working here. Um, the good news is that there's an incredible array of options for us um, once we choose to make different decisions. So you sound like an optimist. That's good. Um, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I've I've been doing this way too long. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have seen how the sausage gets made, um, and I, I will tell you that you know spending all that time trying to work on legislation and like getting the good fight um, was exhausting and um, kind of soul crushing. <laughs> um, and I think aid is just not a good fit for an organization like ours because legislation is about compromise and tiny incremental gains. And um, going back to family members every single year and telling them that their son, daughter, wife, whoever is not gonna get out, is not gonna benefit this year, um, couldn't do it anymore. What is giving me energy and hope is again, like there is great stuff already happening. It can be done because it is being done. Um, and all we really have to do is build that out. And it's, you know, it's just so um, fun and uh, exciting to see these various examples of, you know, deeply rooted community-based organizations. Like I'm talking about David Garcia, who created an organization called Barrio Restoration, which is David Garcia on his bike, which has a landscaping trailer attached to the back of it, riding around his South side neighborhood, cleaning up corners, cutting the weeds, picking up the trash, and the neighbors come out 
and then they're helping and they're talking and they're interacting um, and they're bumping the cumbias and it's like fun and great and people are investing in the place where they live and taking ownership and talking to each other. That's community safety. You still sound like an optimist. Um, sorry. Um, I, mean, you know, I play one on TV. <laughs> no, I understand. Um, so uh, forgive me if I'm being a little dense here. Um, if, if you're not focused on legislation, how are you hoping to enact change? Yeah. So... Um, we're doing this in a couple of ways. So one obviously is this narrative change piece, right? Having people have different conversations. But the other piece is based on some wisdom uh, that I learned from Christy Donner, who is the executive director of the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. And Christy says, we make the mistake of thinking the money follows the policy, but it's the other way around. Right. So all these organizations have been trying to pass sentencing reform, for example, and have succeeded in states like Colorado. They succeeded. They reduced their prison population. Does the DOC budget go down? It does not. Right. That money doesn't magically get reinvested anywhere like we hoped that it would. You got to move the money. And so that's really I mean, that's kind of policy, but we can also do that on a much more local level. And we can also do that through grant funding. So for example, here in Tucson, we've initiated um, a project called the Community Safety Incubator Project. And we have some limited funding from the city of Tucson. We're applying for some more funding. And the idea here is what can a small group of neighbors, I'm talking like people who live on the same block, do together to enhance the safety and well-being of their community? if they were just given the access and the resources. And this does not require the city council to pass a resolution or anyone to give them permission. What can people just do if they get together and they have access to resources? So that's the idea. We've been working with um, small groups of neighbors. They come up with something. And obviously, you know, we're not gonna be able to open a drug treatment center or you know, a low-income housing unit but you can put better lighting on the corner so kids can ride their bikes at night. Or you can clean up an alley um, or put a book bank in a park or have a carnesada or a block party so people get out of their fences and meet each other and build connections with each other. So it's again, starting on this micro level and it is about relationships. Um, and that is something that we can do with no one, really, right? And that is the nexus of safety. I think, again, in this culture, we have this idea of safety from other people. If you look to the wider world, safety is with other people. Other people are what creates our safety. It's knowing who your neighbors are. It's having meaningful relationships with each other, looking out for each other, sharing resources taking care of each other's kids, fixing your neighbor's roof, right? That creates safety. Um, and we don't have to pass any laws to be able to do that. So let's say I live in California, which I do. Um, and 
I'd like to see, I'll, I'll be realistic. I'd like to see a much smaller footprint for our carceral system. I'm not quite at zero. Um, but, you know, I think most people in prison don't need to be in prison. Um, so maybe I agree with you 95% of the way somewhere. Um, we'll get you there. Well, I've moved a lot in the last 10 years. So, you know, um, so what, what should I do to make a difference? What do you know about your community? The place where you live? Probably more than I want to know. Okay. So <laughs> are there enough, is there drug treatment available? Not nearly you? enough. Right. So who makes the decision about uh, Who's advocating well, for that? Is there a coalition? Is there a NAMI? Uh, is there a family member group that you can be part of to say, like, you can take this apart and be like, the thing that I think will do the most to create safety in the place where I live is X. And then you find the people that are working on X and join them. That, that seems like a reasonable approach because the alternative is to bang your head against the county or the state and, and hope to change it, uh, which doesn't seem to work very well. No. And this is the thing is, um, if we approach it from the other direction, instead of not this, tear down, rrr, to say like, we need this thing. And there's ample evidence, I'm sure, that that is a thing that is needed. And you can find out exactly how much it will cost. Right, like how many, what is the current um, waiting list for the drug treatment facilities in your area? How much would it cost to have enough beds to meet that? Then you have a number and you dedicate yourself to figuring out what are the levers of power to make that thing happen. Yeah, um, and the other issue I think you know, is housing that, uh, you know, one of the big problems that we have in California is the cost of housing is ridiculous. Um, and, you know, and I know enough to know that it's not much better in Arizona either. Sure. Um, but it happens to be ridiculous in California. And, um, you know, California has spent probably the last five or six years trying to fix uh, its housing crisis, and it hasn't done a very good job of that um, for a variety of different reasons and not not for lack of intent uh, on the part of those in power. But, you know, the structure of the system is not good. I mean, are you an advocate of you know, um, you know, these micro houses or, you know, these little pods or, uh, I mean, what do you see uh, as the solution to that? Yeah. So this is the trick is that there's not one solution to that. Yeah. Of course. Um, there are multiple solutions to that. So what is something you can get your hands around, right? I think is what you're asking. Again, if you're situated in X town in California. What is it that you can do? So I guarantee you that there are organizations that are working on that, that you can join. And it's, um, 
Like one of my favorite examples uh, from here in, um, in Tucson, and I suspect it's not the only one that exists, is called Community Home Repair of Arizona, CHIRPA. Um, and essentially what they do is they have staff and volunteers that go to low-income people's homes and fix stuff. Right. So like if you are like a lot of the cases that they see are like elderly people in a trailer, right? They own their own home. They are not homeless. But if they can't fix the broken water heater, they will be because they can't afford to fix a broken water heater. They're on a fixed income, they're elderly, social security, whatever. Somebody comes in and fixes your water heater, you just save somebody from a complete life crisis. Right. And that's something that groups of folks can do and do already, right? That, you know, elderly neighbor that needs XYZ done on their house, people come together and they help out with that. So find out like who's in your neighborhood that might be housing insecure. Um, and what is it that you or others together might do to support that person? Um, it's, uh, you know, there are tiers. Obviously, we need more affordable housing. We need for landlords to not be greedy bastards. We need for um, people to not come in and buy up all the housing stock and flip it so that they can make a ton of money. Um, there are legislative policy changes that need to happen. And in the meantime, we have us. And there's a lot that we can do together. Um, to support each other and keep folks in the homes that they have. So we're almost out of time. Is there like a blueprint or something that somebody could access uh, who, you know, wants to make a change in their community? Um, so we are, you know, we have, for example, the research survey that I mentioned um, is on our webpage, uh, justcommunities.org. Um, there's an interactive dashboard that you can go in and we're outsourcing everything about it. So if you want to see how we did that research, we use Google Forms. It's like anybody could do this and we're happy to share that information. Um, the incubator projects, we're going to be, we just finished our first pilot. And so we're going to be putting out some information about how that worked and what we did, how much it costs, all that kind of stuff and continue to update that. Um, and we also just have some information on our webpage about just this perspective and this changing the way that we think about safety, because that's really where it begins. We have to think about these things very differently um, and uh, expand our notion of safety beyond um, this perceived threat of crime to the things that we all need and share that make us safe. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your work. I mean, uh, very interesting, uh, <laughs> very uh, challenging, obviously, um, but uh, very worthwhile. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Caroline Isaac. She's the Executive Director of Just Communities Arizona. I'm David Greenwald, your host of Everyday Injustice, and join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening 
Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.